Let's ask God to help us with his word. Uh, our gracious uh, God, as we hear our Lord Jesus speak in the garden, uh, we pray in your mercy that we would hear him, that we would understand what he is committing himself to, and that you would fill our hearts with grateful love and trust in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Jesus, of course, for us is inseparably associated with the cross and sometimes we can almost think it's something Jesus takes in his stride. Tough, yes, but so is being a soldier on the front line in Ukraine. A bit sad, yes, but lots of people have died bravely for a good cause. Not something we would want to do, absolutely yes, but actually... This is what Jesus came to do. It's almost like it's his job. And up to this point in the story, you could almost think that this is the way Jesus felt about it. He's talked repeatedly uh, since his followers' confession of him as the Christ of dying. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary that he would go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests and scribes, be killed, and on the third day rise. And then he's moved purposefully towards Jerusalem where he said he will die. And while the disciples have been dismayed or confused about what he has said, about what he's doing, Jesus has always been the one in control, the cool one. But that sense is shaken by what the apostles witnessed, overheard in the garden and report to us. As you heard, it's an intense, intimate scene, heavy with grief and foreboding. Jesus has finished the Passover, his last supper with his disciples, and they head out to the Mount of Olives to a walled garden there, probably an olive grove, for Gethsemane means oil press. And as he moves away from the group of disciples to pray, he takes with him Peter, James and John. And these are not just the followers who are closest to Jesus. They are the three who have said that they can share in what will happen to Jesus, to die with him if they must. And they see Jesus' distress. He is sorrowful and troubled, deeply disturbed within himself. So sad, verse 38, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death, so sad that he can say his sorrow is almost killing him. And that intense emotion is then expressed in his praying. He falls face down. He's almost physically overwhelmed by the turmoil and grief within him. What is it that is causing him this distress? Is it just the thought of dying? Or more. He prays, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And again, a second time, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus is distressed by the thought of what is to come, what he describes as his cup, the cup he is soon to drink. That cup he must drink is the focus of his prayer, its contemplation, the source of his turmoil. So what is that cup? 
Because if we're to understand Jesus' turmoil, understand the cross and what it involves for Jesus, understand why Jesus' death is not just another martyr's death for a good cause, we need to get the cup right. An image drawn from the Old Testament, the cup is a way of speaking of his coming death that interprets that death for us as a death that is God's punishment for sin, as an experience of God's just wrath against sin. Listen to Isaiah speaking of the desolation Jerusalem has experienced when destroyed by the Babylonians and how that will now change. Wake yourself, wake yourself up, stand up Jerusalem, you who have drunk the cup of his fury from the Lord's hand. You have drunk the goblet to the dregs, the cup that causes people to stagger. There is no one to guide her among all the children she has raised. There is no one to take hold of her hand among all the offspring she has brought up. These two things have happened to you, devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will grieve for you? How can I comfort you? Your children have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the Lord's fury, the rebuke of your God. So listen to this suffering and drunken one, but not with wine. This is what the Lord, your Lord says, the Lord, even your God who defends his people. Look, I've removed from your hand the cup that causes staggering, that goblet, the cup of my fury. You will never drink it again. I will put it in the hands of your tormentors. Isaiah says Jerusalem in its conquest and destruction by the Babylonians has drunk the cup of God's fury, his fury against their idolatry and justice that Isaiah details at the beginning of his prophecy. And the experience of drinking that cup has been devastation and destruction. And now he says that cup will pass to the nations, the idolatrous nations God has used to punish Israel. Again, the psalmist says the cup is God's judgment on the wicked of the earth. For God is the judge. He brings down one and exalts another. For there is a cup in the Lord's hand full of wine blended with spices, and he pours from it. All the wicked of the earth will drink, draining it to the dregs. And in Jeremiah you see what a powerful image of helplessness and shame the cup is. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take this cup of wine of wrath from my hand and make all the nations to whom I'm sending you drink it. They (coughs) will drink, (coughs) stagger, and go out of their minds because of the sword I am sending among them. Then you are to say to them, this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says. Drink, get drunk, and vomit. Fall down and never get up again as a result of the sword I am sending among you. The cup is the cup of God's wrath, which God's enemies, those who have rebelled against his just and good rule, whether those who have broken the covenant or those who worship idols and afflict his people, must drink. It is for all the wicked of the earth, an image which speaks of the shame and humiliation of those who drink it like drunks in their vomit. To drink the cup is to experience God's wrath in the triumphs of your enemies over you like Jerusalem, in destruction and in loss and in death. This is what the cross Jesus knows awaits him, is 
before Jesus. The draining of the cup of God's wrath, the experience of shame, humiliation, the triumph of his enemies over him, death. But why should it be so? Jesus is not the wicked. He hasn't employed violence like the nations. He's no Wagner soldier. He's not an idolater who has followed the path of greed or selfish desire, but the only one who truly knows and who has truly loved his father. And Jesus has never rebelled against the rule of his father. As we saw in his temptation at the beginning of his ministry and what we see, what we see here again in the garden, is that his will is always to do the will of his Father. So why? Why the cup of God's wrath for Jesus? Well, only God can tell us that. And God does tell us. He tells us in his word that Jesus will drain the cup of God's wrath because his death will be in the place of those who are wicked, who are rebels, who are idolaters, that on the cross... He takes upon himself what their sins deserve. See, the Lord Jesus is the servant of the Lord, spoken of in Isaiah 53. The servant who, as you heard, will be pierced not for his own, but for our rebellion, crushed for our iniquities, be wounded for our healing, be punished for the iniquity of us all, struck down for the rebellion of God's people. It bears hearing Again, Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before his shearers. He did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by, the hand, by, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mightiest spoil, because he willingly submitted to death, and he was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many, and interceded for the rebels. You see, Jesus has already been identified in Matthew as the servant in his healing ministry. And Jesus has spoken of his death as the death of the servant, giving his life as a ransom for many, pouring out his blood for many for the forgiveness of sins. In the garden, Jesus is facing and accepting the full burden of being God's servant, doing God's will in saving his people from their sins as the angel said he would 
at his birth. And as his servant on the cross, the Lord Jesus will receive the fury, the just wrath of God his Father that destroys all opposition and rebellion against him and restores the good order and blessing of God's rule. Jesus is not just contemplating his death. He is contemplating enduring God's holy wrath against sin, something he has never experienced, enduring it in the place of sinners who deserve that wrath, in the place of people like the people of Jerusalem who have known what God commands and willfully turned aside from it, people like Jerusalem's attackers, who have violently taken the lives of others, looted their property, enslaved the survivors with all that goes with that. People like the idolatrous nations who tell lies about God, treat him as part of the creation, small, limited, inconsistent and ineffective. People like, well, actually like us, like you and I, children of Adam, who want to occupy God's good creation and use it as we will without thanks or reference to God, who want to put our judgment of what is right and wrong in place of God's, who want to drive the creator out of our lives and so do what he condemns but seems right to us. Lie, engage in sexual immorality, pursue wealth at the expense of others, disobey parents, slander and gossip about others in pride, look down on others. The Lord Jesus, the Son of God, is contemplating in the garden enduring God's holy wrath against sin, our sin. And we cannot measure what it is for the Lord Jesus to drink this cup. We can name it, we can say what he is doing, but we are so far from feeling what it means. You see, we don't know God's goodness and love as Jesus has. We might know this much, but he knows its full measure, unmarred, unmediated from eternity, the very context of his being as son. Nor do we know the full intensity of God's holy wrath. We might at times have felt a little of his displeasure, but we are shielded from it now by God's patience. But Jesus, the eternal Son, will know it to the full. And experiencing as the incarnate Son on the cross the obscuring of one love and the substitution of the other wrath, even for a moment, is an infinite moment of infinite power, a reality intensity of judgment not increased with time, nor is its intensity lessened by the sure hope of resurrection. In Jesus' turmoil, in his prayers, we glimpse for a moment what we cannot grasp, what it is for the Son to drain the cup of God's wrath for sin on the cross, to die in the place of sinners, to die in our place. And Jesus' prayer in the garden also tells us <coughs> his death for sin is the Father's will, the expression of the Father's determination to save his people, to ensure the story of creation concludes with blessing, not curse. Yet not as I will, but as you will, he prayed. Your will be done. It is the Father's will to give his only begotten Son 
so that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. That's the Father's will because he loves. And there in the garden, we sense both the cost of that love and its settled purpose that sin and death should not be the last word in God's good creation. And the Father and the Son are one in this settled purpose of love. Though the Son, as is right for any human, expresses a wish that there might be another way for life, each of our lives is a precious and sacred gift. His settled will is always to do the Father's will. Not my will, but yours be done. And in this we see the Lord Jesus is true God and true man there facing the cross. He is true God in being the true Son of God who from eternity loves and obeys the Father and seeks his glory in all things. And he is the true man, the true and better Adam. In this garden, Jesus rejects the choice of the first garden. For Adam and Eve, it was my will, not your will. Deceived by the devil's lie, they thought life, the true life of human flourishing, is found in pleasing yourself, not believing God's word, but doing what seemed right to you. For the Lord Jesus, it is your will, not mine, be done. He says that life, the genuine human life, is found in believing God's word and conforming our will to his, living by his commands. And so if you want to to know what it is to be a true man, a true human, Look where you probably won't be tempted or prompted to look by our world. Look to the garden. And there you'll see what it is for a human to live. And Jesus' prayer also tells us there is no other way for a sinful humanity to be saved other than by the death of the Son of God. This is the loved Son praying, pouring out his heart to the Father. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But as we see, it is not possible, and the Son must drain this cup. Only by Jesus' death, only as God upholds the just sentence of the law and our sin by executing it on Jesus in our place, only as Jesus, only as God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, can we be reckoned right in God's sight and reconciled to the God we have wronged, can find peace with the living and just God? Now we need to reckon with that. Every time you're tempted to think that you can be good enough by your own efforts, that you can earn your place in heaven by the good you do, by the law you keep, the gifts you make, the rituals you practice. Every time you are tempted to think that your sin is not seriousness, that God, not serious, that God could just shrug his shoulders and overlook your sin, your failing to trust him, your dismissing of his word in favour of your own will. Think on Jesus' words here and see the pride in those temptations, that you're saying that what is not possible for God, the living almighty God, is somehow possible for you. Look on that and despise the thought. And as there is no other way, there is no other saviour than the Lord Jesus, crucified and risen.
No other than the incarnate son can die in the place of sinners. Everyone else must die for their own sins. He alone had no sin, loved God, his father, perfectly. And it would not be right for anyone else except the incarnate son of God to die in the place of others. Only one who is God can rightly substitute for another receiving the punishment of the just God. It would be wrong for God to take a creature to bear the sins of another to reward obedience with death. But it is right, gracious, for God to pay the cost in himself, to provide himself the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world. Sin is real, your sin is real, judgment is real, your judgment is real, and atonement must be real. And real atonement is found nowhere else, not in the teachings of Muhammad or Buddha, not in the philosophers before or since. You see, teaching ideas don't deal with sin against the living creator God. Jesus, draining the cup of God's judgment on our sin on the cross, deals with sin. He's not contemplating martyrdom in the garden, but being the saviour of all who believe in him by his obedient death in our place. The only saviour, the saviour alone, for his followers make no contribution to his achievement. They flee as Jesus said he would. It is a painful privilege to witness the Lord Jesus in the garden to see the distress of his soul as he contemplates dying, dying for us in our place, as he commits himself again, reckoning the cost to doing the Father's will in saving his people. A painful privilege. So how will you respond to what is revealed in this intimate, intense scene? Perhaps you're moved, but not confident you understand what's going on. The language of sin and judgment might be foreign to you or you're not used to thinking of God as living and active, the just God to whom you're accountable or you're not sure how Jesus' commitment to this cup affects you, can give you what you long for, peace with God, the assurance of justice in the world. If that's you, come and talk. Or maybe you've sat there unmoved think you're all right as you are, living by your own rules, living to please yourself, that the Lord Jesus moving in an alien thought world to you is just wrong. Well, God does not speak in vain. The Jesus who contemplates the cup is the Jesus who went to his death and is the Jesus whom God raised from the dead. He speaks the truth and his understanding of the world, a world where the living God is creator and judge, is true. And the truth is that unless the Lord Jesus drains the cup of God's wrath in your place, the cup still remains for you to drink. And that is not me, but God's word. If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, that is, if anyone believes the devil's lie, and worships the creature in place of the creator, including worshipping our own wills, putting our truth in the place of God's truth. Well, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulphur in the sight of the holy angels and in sight of the Lamb. You see, why should you think that your words, your thoughts, what you would like to believe will establish reality? 
How can they be more trustworthy than the word of one who has said he would die and rise and has died and risen? Change your mind and come and talk. Or perhaps you have listened and seeing the dread of the good Lord Jesus of experiencing God's wrath, you want to be spared what you know you deserve for your sin. The good news is that Jesus is draining the cup to spare you from facing God's wrath. Is giving his life as a ransom to set you free, free from condemnation and death. And the Lord Jesus has promised to forgive any who repent and believe the gospel that he's died for our sins, was buried and been raised from the dead. Any who repent, that is, turn back to the living Lord Jesus and say, it is right that I trust you and you are Lord of my life, that you decide for me what is right and wrong and how I should live. And then ask him to save you, to forgive you your sin and make you one of his people. He will hear you. And you can speak to him at any time. You can speak to him here or at home, but speak to him. Call out to him and come and talk. But maybe you're a believer in the Lord Jesus and this scene might even be a familiar scene to you. Well, I hope you feel again in his words the cost of what the Lord Jesus is committing himself to do, committing himself in love to do for you. Now, how do you live worthy of such a love? Well, three things. Firstly, by practising the grateful trust that remembers and never forgets. We live worthy by keeping on believing what we learn here, that in Peter's words, he himself bore our sins on his body on the tree, or in Paul's words, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Believing those words, we are grateful. We are grateful that he bore not just the sins of the world, but my sins. That the Father gave the Son not just for the world, but for me. Grateful every day that in committing himself to drain the cup of God's wrath, I need never face it. And that in changing my relationship with God, he has changed my present and my future, your present and your future, if you're a believer, so that trusting him in the present, we can know his love, stand in his grace, know we're adopted as God's children. And in the future, we can be sure that to depart and be with Christ is better by far and can be assured of rising with him. Knowing this death is for us is something we are always to be grateful for, something we can give thanks for always, that you can wake up every day, no matter what else is going on in your life, and give thanks for. And that is so healthy for your soul. And believing and giving thanks, of course, we're to always remember that only Jesus saves and saves only by his cross. So we never let ourselves drift into thinking sin is not serious or that our good works deserve God's favour. We never turn aside to trust other saviours, to look to other gods. And we never let ourselves drift into thinking the Lord Jesus has not done enough to deal with our sin, or that God is still angry with us. We have to turn away from those accusing voices to remember 
Jesus draining the cup for us. And always have our confidence in the Lord Jesus to be right with God, to be forgiven. Believing he has drained the cup for us, we practice the grateful trust that remembers and never forgets. Oh, and yes, we live worthy of his love, secondly, by listening to him and taking to heart what he says to his disciples here. Words which are always true for all of us. Couldn't you stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Stay awake. The word stay awake is the word the Lord Jesus uses in Matthew 24. It's an attitude of watchfulness, of remaining alert. He's saying, keep watch, don't give up, don't drift from being vigilant to do what your Lord says, from living ready for his return and pray that you might not enter into temptation, into testing. You see, we have to live each day with a relationship of real dependence on our God to keep us. We're in a spiritual battle each day and there are forces in the world that are opposed to Christ and would lead us away from Christ. And we are not strong enough in ourselves as the disciples were not strong enough in themselves to resist them. We pray for strength and help. We should heed Jesus' warning. The spirit, our human spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. We see that in Peter, James and John. They had said that they would die with Jesus, but they cannot even stay awake with him one hour. And in the story we see they come to flee and deny him. We shouldn't think that in ourselves we are stronger or better than them. Like them, we can be full of good and noble intentions of how our love for Jesus will be expressed. Sex, I'll never have sex before or outside marriage. Oh yeah, I'll speak up for Jesus amongst my peers at work, in my class. I won't make pursuing money guide my career choices. We can be full of good intentions and often are when we first know his grace. But we tire or find desire stronger than we expected, or we fear loneliness or financial or housing insecurity. And what we thought could never happen to us because we were all in for Jesus happens. And we know the shame of that, feel the shame of Jesus' reproach. Couldn't you stay with me? Knowing his love, And knowing we are no better than Peter, James and John, we listen to Jesus. We stay alert and we pray as he taught us that we will not enter into temptation, that our God will keep and strengthen us. And thirdly, we live worthy of his love by learning to pray ourselves, your will be done. The prayer our Lord teaches all his disciples to pray in teaching them the Lord's Prayer. The content of our Lord's will is different for us. We will never have to endure God's wrath as the Lord Jesus has, for he has done it for us. But that same attitude of love for and trust in and obedience to the Father that's expressed in our Lord's Prayer is to be the attitude of all Jesus' followers to his Father, whom he has made our Father. And there will be times, even times of anguish, where you will feel the difference between what you desire and what you know to be God's will. You might desire revenge. 
But no, God has commanded us to love our enemies. You might desire sexual fulfilment, but know that God has commanded that our sexual desire only finds expression in marriage between a man and a woman. And in those times, we are to pray, not my will, but yours be done, costly as it may be, because we know the Father's love and giving his Son and we trust him. Oh yeah, and there'll be times when we'll feel the difference between what we fear and what we know God is asking us to do. We might fear loneliness, but no God has said to only marry a believer. We might fear the consequences of telling the truth we know, but no God has said we must not lie. We might fear our life narrowed, say, by our obligation to ageing parents, but no God has said we are to honour them. And in these times too we pray, not my will, but yours be done. Because we trust our saving God, that his will is good. And there will be times where we know what we desire for ourselves or another and know at the same time that we do not know God's will, at least in relation to this particular person or circumstance. And in those times too, we make our desire known, like our Lord. But we also pray, your will be done. Because we see in our Lord Jesus that the will of our God, even if it seems hard or difficult to understand, is better than we can imagine. And at all times as believers, whether in our weakness or our struggle to do God's will, or our fear or perplexity, even in the conviction of our failure that grieves us. We know that because the Lord Jesus prayed, your will be done before us in the garden. And it was the Father's will that the Son drained the cup of God's wrath at our sin, and that from the garden Jesus went to the cross and its humiliation. We know that turning to our Father, We need not fear his judgment or his anger ever again. And instead, be assured of his forgiveness and love for us and that we stand in his grace and even our suffering will serve his good purpose for us. So, brothers and sisters, see Jesus in the garden. See his distress. Hear him pray, not my will, but yours be done. As he commits himself to the cup, to the cross that saves us and give him your trust, your love and your praise as you live as his follower in this world. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this glimpse of our Lord Jesus and of what that cross that he's about to die on, meant for him. We thank you and praise you that there he did drain the cup of your wrath against our sin. And we pray that you would move us to trusting gratitude and to a love for our Saviour that would seek to do your will in all things, knowing that you are good your purposes of love triumph and your will is our best. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.